Hello, and thank you for supporting the History of World War II podcast, Episode 9, Blackie. Now that Edward Blacksell, or Blackie as he was known, was stationed at East Grinstead, Mackendo's team was in place. Not that any of them had a clue of what the future held, but Blackie would spend countless hours over the coming decades, along with the maestro and Dr. Russell Davies, Mackendo's anesthesiologist, in standing up for the interests and needs of those who came to Ward 3. Blackie was the nickname for Edward Blacksell, who, after the war, would go on to be the headmaster of the Barnstaple Secondary Modern School. He would also go on to help many guinea pigs, starting almost the moment he arrived at the sty. His route to East Grinstead was a strange one, but the guinea pigs had already learned that fate did indeed deal strangely with anyone connected to their cause. And one day, sadly, Blackie would go on to qualify for the guinea pig club in a very real sense. But that was in the future. As the war came to Britain, Blackie wanted to join the Royal Navy, but the doctors rejected him. He turned to the RAF, who, compared to Germany, was short on everything and everyone, so they took him in. When he came before the officer who would decide how best Edward Blacksell could help the RAF, he found himself stumped. What to do with a young, skinny schoolteacher with an English degree? Just then, the officer noticed some of his rather more truculent airmen walking over. The officer told Blackie that if he could get those men to double-time it over here, he had a job for him. Now, Blackie might have been young, thin, and slightly stooped, but he was a teacher, and when younger, had spent many hours raising his voice over the winds of Exmoor during football matches. Blackie bellowed, and the men ran over. Congratulations, the officer said. Blackie was now a physical training instructor. He could yell and get people to do things they did not want to do. That was physical training all over. So he was soon posted to Plymouth in Devon, and his first job was to rein in a rather rambunctious group of Australians of the Australian Air Force 10 Squadron. They hadn't yet been convinced of the benefits of physical training. So, Blackie set up an obstacle course, one the men found to be a real bastard afterwards, and ran it himself to the best of his ability. When he finished the course, the Aussies were there, waiting for him, and staring. He then told them that when every one of them could beat his time, he would buy them a barrel of beer. The challenge stung the Australians' pride, and they accepted. Soon, they were all able to beat Blackie's time. They knew they had been swindled, but appreciated the unusual approach and asked Blackie to join them for a drink. Not long after, Colonel Philippi, who had ears everywhere, as every good administrator should, heard about the young wonder that could make men believe in physical training, something that isn't any more popular now than then. Philippi wanted this kid as his daily contact at East Grinstead, and as we have seen, usually got what he wanted. And not long after drinking that barrel of beer with the Australians, Blackie received orders to report to a Mr. Archibald McIndoe, obviously a civilian, at the Queen Victoria Hospital, East Grinstead. Upon arrival, Blackie opened up his bag and a guinea pig saw his gym shoes, shorts, and PT instructor's vest. 
The man in a wheelchair and legless replied, Good God, you're not going to do physical training with us. But the guinea pig soon found out that Blackie liked beer as much as they did. He did not push the physical training and promised to help the wounded men fight the good fight that McIndoe and Davies had already started with the service and civil authorities. And Blackie got his first chance to honor those words soon after his arrival in the Battle of the Blues. Regulations said that all hospital patients were to wear a blue uniform and a red tie. One guinea pig, Henry Standen, replied, We were glad to fight for the flag, but not to parade East Grinstead in it. The men hating these clothes went to the boss, and, as always, he took their side. To McIndoe, the medical uniforms from the World War I era were as out of date as the required calling of all patients, invalids. Not exactly what these men needed to hear when they were trying to rebuild their lives with what functionality the maestro could give them with their hands, legs, and eyes. So soon, all the uniforms were in a big pile and set alight. The Germans might have missed the fire and the smoke, but the air ministry did not. Soon after, an air ministry staff officer, accompanied by several RAF military police, showed up. As these men made their way to find McIndoe, they noticed the invalids in their RAF uniforms, or really anything they could find that was easy for them to put on, considering the limited ability most had with their hands. As for the officer and his MPs, they themselves looked every inch the professional man, with their perfectly working bodies and sharp uniforms. It amused the guinea pigs that these men could not see that those hobbling around had already done their service for the country, and had paid a terrible price. The mutilated and ravaged men in bandages knew that these men were just doing the same thing, but now dealing with something they had never seen before, nor had they ever met McIndoe. The staff officer found McIndoe, and the conversation began. The military police were standing behind the officer, and several guinea pigs were standing, sitting, or in some state of rest, behind the boss. McIndoe calmly began the duel by informing the officer that the required clothes were impractical for most of these men, his men. The stiff government fly buttons were simply beyond their ability to work. On a side note, their lives would get much easier when zippers were sent over from Canada, called zips. The staff officer replied, Regulations were regulations. Then McIndoe replied that he understood that these men had a job to do. In fact, McIndoe himself had turned down an offer to be a vice air marshal several times because he wanted to take care of these men, his men. This caught the staff officer off guard. How do you press someone who turned down a rank much higher than yours? And besides, he was a civilian. He couldn't be ordered to do anything. The duel was considered a draw, for now. The staff officer said he would look into it and be back. McIndoe had learned a while back that regulations were not something you could beat off with a blunt instrument. They had to be scooted around. And after some research, the boss found his scoot. The air ministry allowed all ranks of dress in sports clothes when taking part in sports, 
So, McIndoe asked and received permission for all the neighborhood of East Grinstead to open up their tennis courts, squash courts, and swimming pools to his patients. When the officer came back with his military police, they witnessed these men with bandages over their eyes, missing legs, arms or legs in casts going by, saying, Oh, hello, we're on our way for a little tennis, and then maybe a dip in the pool. The staff officer and his escorts turned around, left, and were never seen again. After all, regulations were regulations. But more than the discomfort, the uniform regulations clashed with the rankless society of the guinea pigs. Simply, in McIndoe's opinion, a badly burned man was a badly burned man, regardless of rank. And when pressed by his peers that the atmosphere that he created, or at least allowed, hampered the recovery of his patients, McIndoe responded by saying that, According to his calculations, less than 5% of the men would have benefited from a more strict regimen. Why make the other 95% suffer for the few? Besides, those few seem to have adjusted well enough. During this battle, and so many more in the future, Blackie was right there beside McIndoe, taking on the government, air ministry, or whoever attempted to take rights away from the occupants of the sty. And anyone Blackie did battle with inevitably caught sight of and commented on his guinea pig tie. His RAF color tie with the winged guinea pig motif was certainly a part of his uniform and himself. He never went anywhere without it. Blackie may not have gone under McIndoe's knife, but his membership into the guinea pig club was just as real as, say, Jimmy Wright's, who endured 61 operations, but who never regained his sight. Blackie's membership rested on his absolute loyalty and in never admitting defeat in a guinea pig's cause. Unfortunately, in less than 10 years after the end of the war, Blackie truly earned a place with his beloved guinea pigs. Having survived a horrific car accident, Blackie was required to undergo his own plastic surgery at Old Stock Hospital at Salisbury. The nurse, recognizing his tie as he was being brought in, remarked that something was missing and said, This man is a guinea pig. He needs a pint of beer. Such was the reputation of the guinea pig club. Still. But besides doing battle with various levels of authority on the guinea pig's behalf, Blackie was also there in a personal sense for the men. In 1942, a young man named Alan Morgan was returning from a bombing raid over Germany. It was his 21st birthday. While over Leipzig, Flack hit his plane and a side door flew open. Two of the crew tried to close the door, but... Due to the plane's height, the men passed out from a lack of oxygen before getting the door closed. Allen pulled the men back from the opening, hooked them up to their oxygen tanks, and then made for the door himself. But then he passed out, and another of the crew went to help him. Just then, German fighters came at their plane. No one had time to help Allen. In no time at all, his hands hanging out of the plane froze to the fuselage. When he awoke, he was already at East Grinstead, with, for some strange reason, beyond his understanding, 
his hands in a bucket of ice. And whenever he did speak for the next few days, all he said was that his roommates were bloody mad and that everyone around him was bloody mad. The daily antics of each Grinstead seemed beyond his comprehension. Days went by, and then McIndoe and his team were forced to inform Alan that their hopes of saving his hands were gone. They would have to remove eight fingers and most of each of his thumbs. After all, all that remained of his fingers were shriveled black sticks. Terrified, when the day of surgery came, Alan asked Blackie to be by his side. But Blackie did better than that. He not only wheeled him in and out of surgery himself, but watched the operation and was there when Alan woke from his induced sleep. Blackie explained all that had happened and used that moment to help Alan focus on what was left, not what had been removed of his hands. He said that McIndoe left a part of each thumb, so when he was better, they could begin together to teach Alan how to use what he had left. But the first thing Alan needed was to get a letter to his fiancée, Ella, in Manchester. She had given him a ring a few weeks before. Would Blackie write a letter for him? Of course. So Alan informed his lady why he did not turn up for his birthday party she had arranged for him. He then told her about his hands and that he would understand if she didn't want to fulfill her promise to marry him. Fortunately for Alan, she wrote back about what rot his letter had been, and of course, she was still going to marry him. After the war, Alan interviewed for several jobs as a machinist, his pre-war occupation, but was turned down each time. Then, during one interview, Alan kept his hands in his pocket the entire time. He got the job and made tools for the next 11 years. The other non-patient guinea pig was McIndoe's anesthesiologist, Dr. Russell Davies. Roaming Ward 3, he could not help but overhear the pilots talk to each other as pensions began to be awarded. One night, during one of the many times German bombers came over southern Britain in 1941, Davies found that he couldn't sleep. Running through his head was the different percentages of a pension that his pilots received. How were those percentages decided upon? For example, pilot Henry Standen, his body and face had been mutilated, which left him with partial vision out of one eye, was awarded 92% of a full pension. The question that kept running through Davy's mind was, how did someone working in an office who never saw a guinea pig come to that conclusion that Standen should receive 92% of a full pension? To Davy's mind, the extra 2% did not make sense. Was it because he still had some vision in one eye? Was it that arbitrary? The war would be over one day, but these men would have to live with their injuries forever. Would 92% be enough for Standen 20 years from now, practically helpless as he was? And how did all that stand up to Jimmy Wright, now sightless, who received 100% of a pension? This made no sense to the methodical doctor, and so unable to sleep, Russell Davies spent the rest of the night working out his own formula of what the men should receive. He started with a premise from what was casually told to him by a pensions official. 
Quote, roughly speaking, we say 50% for half of an injured face and 100% for a whole injured face, and start from there. Unquote. By morning, Davies had worked out a plan that, he felt, was certainly more fair based on his personal experience at the sty than the current one being used. To say that it was a labor of love sounds slightly demented, but it was the truth. It only angered Davies more when he learned what he suspected was the truth, that there was no different scale or guide when dealing with burn victims or others who had undergone plastic surgery. For example, how can you compare a bullet wound to another man's injuries who needs to have the skin under his arm removed to help make new eyelids? And during that same procedure, maybe has a leg removed. Two different worlds, Davy thought, and the air ministry didn't have a clue. Using his own guide chart, Davies calculated that even the least harmed guinea pig deserved 170% of the pensions offered. From then on, thanks to his all-nighter and the understanding it brought him, this team of McIndoe, Davies, and Blackie went into action each time a guinea pig received less than 100% of a pension, and they won each time. But the three men did not simply wait for a guinea pig to receive a letter saying that they were getting less than 100%. They went on the offensive, as they never wanted this to be an issue for anyone who came to Ward 3. For example, McIndoe would take some of the guinea pigs to the Savage Club, which was set up by Dr. Samuel Johnson in 1857, where artists could spend time in each other's company. As expected, these men who spent their days talking and thinking more than doing were unsettled. And McIndoe threatened to keep bringing them there, as well as taking them to the House of Commons for a little visit. However, it should be noted that the guinea pigs never got 170% of a pension. They got 100%, but only that, no more. Their club and movement also helped those equally wounded in the Army and the Navy. This attitude of the guinea pig's pension started from the very beginning and stayed a focused concern for McIndoe until his death in 1960. After the war, he constantly stressed to his men the trade union power they had as long as they stayed together. In 1956, McIndoe said, quote, Stick together, and no power on earth can hurt you. Drift apart, and you've had it. End quote. That was classic McIndoe. To prove this, McIndoe tracked down and regularly wrote to guinea pig René Marchecourt, who moved himself to Rangiroa Island, Tahiti. McIndoe urged him to keep in contact, which the man replied he would. However, his was a, quote, quite a lonely place just an atoll with a big lagoon in the middle where I am looking after my family coconuts, unquote. After the war, and as the guinea pigs tried to live out their lives, they continued to thank McIndoe and Blackie. But few knew the work or contributions that Dr. Russell Davies put into their causes. The club committee knew, but after that, only the people who directly contacted Davies or were contacted by him once he heard they had a specific need knew of his efforts. And even after the war was long over, 
some guinea pig would get a letter stating that his disability pension was being reduced. The amount didn't matter. The former Stai member would contact McIndoe or Blackie and say, I've been told to report for a pension board. What shall I say? Russell, as often as Blackie or McIndoe, would meet with the man and read the letter for himself. If the cut seemed fair and above board, Russell recommended compliance. But if it seemed arbitrary or unfair, the old crew sprang into action. Russell would prepare a pension brief. McIndoe wrote about the details of the pilot or crewman's contributions and their injuries. And Blackie would offer up his considerable talents of persuasion. After victory was declared and the man's pension was untouched, a letter came from the maestro himself about how happy he was for the man and the outcome. And for many, that's where it started and stopped with McIndoe. But every great leader has a team behind him. <laughs>